everybody. Uh, junior church, you are dismissed. Four years old through fourth grade to walk up front. Um, how many of you saw it snowed again? Welcome to fifth winter of the year. We got excited about that. As many of you noticed, um, when you entered into the building, there was kind of a musty, weird smell. Um, that's not any of us. That was actually due to we had a baptism this week, which is something to celebrate. Some, uh, Summer Hammond, this is Tony's granddaughter, was baptized Thursday. So that's awesome. In preparing for that baptism, this weird ministry you have overflowed and overfilled the baptistry. And the water went about four rows back. And so we've spent the last few days sucking that all up as much as we can. That's um, left this little eau de la baptistry smell. Um, we do plan to get rid of it, hopefully by the end of this week, so it's all better. But just wanted to let you know. Um, Rod was sharing an interesting, <laughs> an interesting communion meditation. He started talking about the beginning of things. Okay, my my thing's not working. That's weird. Okay. Um, and so he's talking about the beginnings, and yet one of the worst things that people hate to talk about, besides that aspect, especially if your parents are in the room, is the subject of death. You're going to get many uh, different reactions from people. Some people can easily talk about it. Others cannot. Um, as a minister, I've done several funerals. And, and I'm going to say something that some of you have heard before, but the rest of you are going to be shocked by it. I would rather do a funeral than a wedding. Okay? Uh, funerals, people want help. You can minister to them through this process. Weddings are drama. There's just a lot of drama. Now I am doing weddings. <sighs> no. But uh, drama, usually it's the bride's mother. Oh, I had to throw that in there. I'm just kidding. Jen, I love you. But there are lots of different reactions to death. Um, here are some statements. These kids really made this statement. Seven-year-old Alan said, God doesn't tell you when you're going to die because he wants it to be a big surprise. Okay? Nine-year-old Marshall said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there. Aaron, age eight, said, the hospital is the place you go uh, where people go on their way to heaven. That's kind of sad. Stephanie, age six, says, doctors help you so you won't die until you pay all the bills. And then Kevin, age 10, says, I'm not afraid to die because I'm a Boy Scout. He's prepared. In our text today, we're going to turn to chapters 31 of 1 Samuel, and we're coming to a very sad and tragic end of King Saul. On one hand, we kind of approach this chapter with a sense of relief. Saul's demise and his death were coming. They've been foretold. They were prophesied by Samuel in chapters 13 and 15. His impending death was confirmed when he um, brought, when Samuel the prophet was brought back from the grave by the witch of Endor. And it, in chapter 28, and Saul, this keeps proving he's making these very bad, foolish 
decisions. This year, our theme is Pursue, a quest for a godly heart. And so far, we've seen David on this roller coaster of not just his life, but his faith. He's been on the highs and lows, highs of following God, of obeying Him, of killing a giant, of slaying many enemies of God in Israel. Lows of being hunted by King Saul, losing his home, his reputation. Lows of leaving Israel and even becoming a traitor. This scripture that we're going to look at today doesn't even mention David. And yet, in the course of David's life, of becoming king, of pursuing a godly heart, this is a pivotal point in all of David's life. The Spirit of God um, inspired the writer to, who recorded this, and I think he does so very, very wonderfully. It's, it's an understated fashion. There's no gloating. It's not um, glorified or anything by David and his men. There's no rush to move on. It goes through the process very succinctly. There's no heavy verdict. It's just, here it is. And so let's read this, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Notice that. God's people fled once again. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons. Jonathan, you remember Jonathan's the best friend of David. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Milkshow. The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. Saul groaned to his armor bearer, Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come and run me through and taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. The Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel, are a constant, present, dangerous enemy to God's people. This was the fact before Saul took office, and nothing has changed under his reign. The text tells us that Israel's under this massive attack, and the dead are piling up quickly. One of the commentators noted that Philistine forces attack not only with armed men on foot, but also with archers riding in chariots, which proved that Israel was under no, um, there was no match for them. It was recently at a funeral, and um, the, the guy got up. I, I didn't know the, the minister who did it, but he got up and he read the obituary, which is very cold. You, I mean, you read an obituary, and it's, there's no feeling or anything in it. And when you read part of this text, it kind of sounds like that. The forces came around, injured him, wounded, killed three of his sons, and it names them Jonathan, Abinadab, and Milkshow. Many more loyal comrades were also killed there. They're not even mentioned. And at this point, Saul is alone, except for his armor bearer. The, na the narrator gives us the presence that they're almost closing in on him in all sides, and he's fighting. And the only thing left is death. And here at this moment in Saul, we've seen so many times, life is full of choices. And Saul, so many times in his life, has made the wrong ones. 
Here at the time of his death, he's forced to make more choices. He's been critically wounded. He does not want to fall into the hands of the enemies. If you read it, he says, so that they don't spear me, run me through, and torture me. So the spearing through was not an act of killing. It was an act of carrying you around while you're impaled and torturing you further. He didn't want that. Instead, he wanted to die a different way. He didn't want to kill himself, or that's not the course of a brave warrior or the king. That's not what a king should do. So Saul asked the only remaining aide next to him, his armor bearer, kill me so they don't do this. And the armor bearer says he wouldn't because he was afraid. What was he afraid of? The the text really doesn't give us any answers, so we, we have to try and figure out, read between the lines. Was it fear of respect that he's, you don't, hurt the anointed, like David has said so many times. Was it devotion? I can't do this because I've devoted my life to protecting you. There's no way. That's what the armor bearer is to do. He is supposed to die before the king dies. He's supposed to protect him. Or was it just plain fear? He's being surrounded by the enemy, and this commander-at-arms here is even dying, and he's just too scared. In a sense, you know, I can hardly blame Saul's request. He's already dying. He's fatally wounded. Just finish the job. Get it done so that I'm not tortured beyond that. The armor bearer's refusal to obey Saul's command to finish him off is kind of brings up this debate that's going along in our culture for euthanasia or mercy killings. And in some respects, it sounds rational. Well, they're, they're already dying. They're already close to death, why don't we just put them out of their misery and their suffering? And we can't put too much emphasis of that topic on this text, because it's really not in there, it's not stated. But as I read it, I just kept thinking about it. And and even here, we need to realize life is precious, as we just heard. It's a miracle we're alive. And the armor bearer didn't take this life and Maybe we should also follow suit of not taking life on that. Uh, Anyway, back to our story. When the armor bearer refused to take Saul's life, he still has options, and he chose again another foolish action. Saul does not um, comment or speak to explain or justify. Swiftly and wordlessly, he rises up, and he falls on his sword. And in case you don't know what that's like, usually you would hold the sword in front of you and just... How many of you were able to see the polar plunge that we did up at the camp? Okay, there was this weird doofy, yeah, I know you saw, there was this weird doofy guy who, there was some who cannibaled in and jumped in, there was one little girl that she just barely got in the water and then she was out, I mean, it was cold, and then there was this big doofy guy who just fell, he just kind of went, I'm not going to fall into it, but he just fell. That's really what they did when they fell on their sword. They would just hold it and fall. That's what he did. Um, Then the armor bearer, he witnesses it, and he does the same thing. He follows suit, takes his own life. If the armor bearer had survived and made it back to camp and he explained what had happened, they would have killed him for not protecting the king, so he ends his own life. The narrative draws summary to this majestics in this um, brevity in in verse 6. So Saul 
his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. That's very cold. Verse 7 indicates that the death of the king, what it meant to Israel. Verse 7 says, When the Israelites were on the other side of Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan, saw that the Israelite army had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled, so the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. Without a king, even this pitiful, bad choice-making king, Israel is hopeless, and they flee. The territory is quickly claimed by the Philistines. They move into the homes, and if you move into a home, that means you claim it, you change it, you do it the way you want. Verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off Saul's head and stripped him of his armor. Then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Asherahs, and they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshan. But when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Bethshan, took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh, where they burned the bodies. And they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. We read first, and it was kind of just this cold, ooh, he died, and then it gets grisly. The normal practice in war was the victors returned to the battlefield, and they collected the spoils. They took the armor. Why would they take Saul's armor? It's supposed to be the best armor of all the soldiers. They stripped it all, taking weapons, equipment, and valuables from the enemy. And because of this, it might mean survival. It also was part of your bonus pay package for winning. Whatever you take away means the enemy that you just defeated can't come and reclaim it. While they're doing this, stripping the dead, they stumble upon the bodies of Saul and his son. And here they are, just picture it. They're starting shouting, King Saul, we found him. Strategically, the king's death means the military has totally lost. And Philistia is now the conqueror. They find the corpses of Saul and his sons. They sever Saul's head. How would they sever his head? Maybe it's in retaliation from Goliath. This grisly trophy of their triumph was sent all around their cities and villages in victory. When it says they strung up his body on the wall, they didn't leave him clothed. They were shaming him. They put his armor in display in their temple to show that they believed it was their god, their false god, the goddess of war, who gave them this victory. And then they put those bodies of Saul and his sons strung up in shame on the walls to be mocked and further violated. Fortunately, the story doesn't end The final sentence of the story does not change the reality. Saul is dead. The Philistines have still won, and Israel still is in distress and chaos. But the story didn't end with that. Long ago, and we didn't read this before, but um, in chapter 11, Saul comes and intervenes with Jabesh Gilead and saves them from the Ammonites. 
The people of Jabesh Gilead have not forgotten, forgotten. The valiant men, when they find out what has happened to King Saul, they go through the night. What's that mean? They're spies. They're sneaking in. They come with resolve and, and even with some risk of being found and killed to take possession and take the bodies down and give them proper burial. Saul in the past has stood up for them, and even though he's made many blunders, they wanted to make sure he was honored and not treated so. No matter what Saul had done that was wrong, nothing could erase their appreciation for that one time he did something great for them. And this is how they show their gratitude. So it went from Saul being killed, cowardly, mocked and humiliated, to finally being honored. And this is the end of Saul. That's it. He lived. He started getting better. He became king. He left his faith. He led in foolishness. He died like a coward. What can we learn from this? I mean, this is a very sad story. This is a sad end for Israel's first earthly king. And I, as I was reading this, I just wanted to skip it. I'm like, man, there's no talk of David. So let's just skip it. I'll just make mention of it. And I kept getting pulled back to it. And so I kept reading it over and over. And so what do we make of this? What can this event in history even tell us? I, I started as I was reading it, more and more points started coming out to me. But I wanted to focus on just two things. Two simple things here. The first lesson is, whether you realize it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, we will face judgment. One day we will face judgment over our choices. Each one of us will one day die from this plane of existence and stand before God and have to make a, um, a stand, or answer for our choices that we've made. As we step back from this event for Saul, tragic scene, we might conclude the greatest tragedy of all of this. It didn't have to happen this way. Saul actually had a very promising beginning. 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Saul was good looking. I mean, if you were here today, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between him and me. Right? His great potential, though, vanished in his sinful choices. Saul kept choosing destruction, disobedience. His demise didn't just happen. Saul's demise was step by step, choice by choice, which made me realize that when we fall into sin, when we fall into a decision of sin, it's not just a spring up and here it is. I don't know how that happened type thing. There, there was a husband. I know this guy. Um, he committed adultery several times on his wife. And uh, after he stopped the, the, the affair, uh, he went and visited the lady once more and slept with her again. When he was asked, why did you do this? Well, I was just over there talking and I tripped. That's not how it works. It doesn't just happen. It's choices that lead up to it. Well, you chose to get out of the car and go there. You chose to drive the car there. 
You chose to get in the car. You chose to think about it. You chose this. It didn't just happen. There was a little boy that I know. Um, when he was four, he was throwing rocks. And he was trying to time it so that when he threw it, they would land on the car as they were passing by. It's a mathematical equation for a four-year-old. He's brilliant in my mind. It was me. So, well, I didn't know it was bad. Yeah, you did. You don't throw rocks at car. Well, I was just trying to time it. Did this little boy just happen to fall into, uh, by the way, he got caught by hitting a cop car. How would you like, parents, that you get a knock on the door and there's the cop with your four-year-old? Is this your son? Nope. <laughs> just like Saul here, we don't fall into sin. It's steps. It's decisions. Saul had a lifelong series of decisions of forgetting God, of letting go of righteousness. And because of that, his life ends in this tragic scene. What should be the epitaph described upon Saul's tomb, his tombstone? In Saul, uh, Samuel 26, verse 21, Saul made a statement. These are Saul's words that summarize his life. Saul confessed, I have sinned. He's talking to David. Come home, my son. I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life today. I have been a fool very, very well. These words should be etched on his tombstone, his epitaph. Could have read something. It, should, it could have said something else. It could have said the first king who saved his people from oppression. It could have said that he protected and provided. Instead, Saul's epitaph, really in the end, was the earthly foolish king. His legacy was one of foolishness. How many of us actually could have that just put on our, our tombstones? Jay Sidlow Baxter described what it means to play the fool when he was studying this passage. This is what he said. A man plays the fool when he neglects his godly friends did, as Saul did with Samuel. A man plays the fool when he goes on enterprises for God before God has sent him, as Saul did. A man plays the fool when he disobeyed God, even in seemingly small matters, as Saul did. A man plays the fool when he tries to cover up his disobedience to God by religious excuses, just like Saul. A man plays the fool when he tries to persuade himself he is doing the will of God. And Saul tried to persuade himself. A man plays the fool when he allows some jealousy or hatred to master and enslave and deprave him, just like Saul. A man plays the fool when he knowingly fights against God. A man plays the fool when he turns from God and seeks alternate spiritualism, like Saul. We can only finish any such downgrade course of this pathetic groan of Saul in his own words. I have played the fool. There are many times I've talked with Christians and talked with one in the mirror. So many times we have played the fool. We've got to be careful and hear and follow this lesson of Saul here. What happened to Saul can easily happen to us. 
we must deal with sin or it will deal with us. When I come to the end of my life, I don't want to cry out like King Saul and said, I've been the fool, I've been very, very wrong. I don't want that to be my legacy. I don't want people to remember those things about me. I want to be able to declare something a lot different, like Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is very near. Now, he's not picking up his sword and falling on it. Look what he says. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Look what Paul just said. When I die, I win, because I was focused on God. That's the kind of assurance that I want to live with. Isn't that the kind of assurance you want in your life? It doesn't come because we've lived such a perfect life. I'm looking out at all of you, and I, I always see a few perfect ones. There's, there's this little tiny baby over here. I think there's one right over here. None of them have chosen sin yet. All the rest of us, you're very imperfect like me. So it's not, we're not going to get this assurance of standing before God because of how good we are. It only can come because of the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus and us placing all of our trust in Him. Jesus tells us, remain in me. Remain in Him, He says, to live in His light. 1 John 1.7 But if we are living in the light as God is in the light... Then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. King Saul did not remain with God. We all say we want to stay in the light with Jesus, but are we willing to do what it takes to live in that light? Saul wasn't. Verse 9 of 1 John, If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. How many of us have truly repented of our wickedness? That's what this is saying. Most of us say, well, I'm not that wicked. I'm not a wicked person. I'm so much better than the rapists, the murderers, and, and the politicians. That was a joke. You can laugh at that one. Okay. Um, instead of comparing ourselves to the people we think we're better than, I, I want to ask you, how good are you compared to God? How righteous are you compared to, not Hitler, but Jesus, against the Holy, the Perfect One? Next to Him, we are wicked. Compared to Jesus, you are wicked. I am wicked. My sweet grandmas who are already in heaven, they were wicked compared to Jesus. The truth is, we are going to die someday and face the judgments. So we need to live in a way that makes us ready for that at any moment. Woody Allen, he's not a theologian, just in case you didn't know, made a humorous statement about death. He says, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I think that really is a lot of people, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want it to happen. Like it or not, we're going to be there when it happens. Ready or not, expected or unexpected, death is coming. My favorite line 
which I'm not going to do. But if you if you've never seen it, you need to go watch Pollyanna. Okay, watch the movie Pollyanna. Everybody thinks it's about the girl. It, it, to me, it is totally about the minister. And he comes in and he yells and he shakes the chandeliers. Death comes unexpectedly. I didn't want to scream it like he did because we got sleeping babies and maybe a few sleeping adults. And so, but death comes unexpectedly. He, he shouts it. That is very true, isn't it? Do you think that set, the jumbo jet 747 that just crashed in China, do you think they all got on the plane saying, yeah, I, I'm ready to die? Do you think that was expected? No one on that plane thought it was their last time to live. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to realize the, the brevity of life so we can grow in wisdom. So therefore, the first lesson I hope we learn from Saul's life here, this story, each of us is going to die. You are going to die. I am going to die. And we are going to face our maker. And account for our choices. We're either going to get a warm welcome, an eternal reward from, from God, or we're going to be shown the way to help. The second lesson that resonated with me from this is loss always leads to mourning. Whatever the loss we are facing, whether it's the loss of a job, the loss of our health, the loss of a marriage, relationship, loss of a loved one in death, all these losses involve a process of mourning. In today's text, the loss of the death of the first king of Israel, and even though it was Saul and he wasn't the great king, it was very hard on the people, and, and those mighty men, they fasted for seven days. Think about that for a moment. Can you imagine your teenagers going three hours without eating? And yet, these men, these mighty men, these warriors, these valiant men, chose to give up food for a week to show honor and respect and mourn the death of King Saul. When I got to thinking about it, I concluded most losses carry with them assortments of feelings. Sometimes those feelings are mixed or conflicted. Uh, there are times when someone dies that there's a sense of relief. When my grandma's died of cancer, there was a sense of pancreatic cancer is no longer hurting them. I feel, feel happy that they are no longer suffering. There's a, a sense of sorrow. There's a sense of emptiness. A lot of people get into this feeling of anger, loneliness, fear. A lot of emotions come. When a marriage ends in divorce, there can be a similar range of emotions because of mourning the loss. There's great sorrow, guilt, failure. Whatever the loss, there are going to be feelings. Greater the loss, the greater the feelings. These feelings take time to work through. And every time you look in Scripture, God's people mourn those losses. When Lazarus died, what did Jesus do? The easiest verse in all of Scripture to memorize. Jesus wept. You guys know Scripture now. Jesus wept. Our God is a God who, look what it says in Psalm 47, He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. 
God promises to heal the broken heart. Whatever the loss, there will be feelings. The greater the loss, it doesn't matter because our God is one who heals. God promises to heal. This is a promise. It's not an expectation. It's not a suggestion. It, it seems too good to be true that God is going to heal your broken heart. There are people in this room right now who have a broken heart over some issue. There are people in this room, whether it's broken relationships, where it's the loss of a loved one, where there's division. There are broken hearts within this room right now, within people right here. And what did we just read? God promises something. It's not too good to be true. It is an absolute promise. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said these words. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your soul. That word for rest there has the, a meaning of healing within it. Many times when we're in that mourning period, we feel like nobody cares. When I, I do brief counseling, basically, for uh, people who have lost loved ones, and one of the things I tell them is, the, the grave site's the hardest part. Your whole world stops for a moment. And you're standing there. And be the same for those divorce papers. You finally sign them. And the whole world stops. And yet you look around and what's happening, the rest of the world is going on like it doesn't even matter. Your world is stopped. Nobody else seems to care. And in that moment, those feelings, we can so easily turn them and say, even you, God, don't care. But God does care. He wants to bring healing. If, if we focus on the loss, we'll never be able to receive the healing God wants to give us, which means we need to remember this. Our losses in life may be very great, but our God is far greater. He is so far greater. No matter what that loss or pain or grief we may endure, God has promised, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. You can trust Him to carry us through. At this point, Israel is facing a very dark day when they have lost to the Philistines. Saul has died. And if they would have focused on that, they wouldn't have realized and been able to see God has already raised up a new leader. He's already been equipping him and teaching him and preparing him for this. The same is true for us. No matter how dark and sad the times are, no matter how sad and dark the times are, there are glorious days ahead of us. My, my Grandma Blake, um, I call her the greatest grandma in the world. I love her. She... She knew how to hug you so much it hurt. She knew how to make food, this fried chicken. Um, but she just she cooked, and all of her family showed it. Okay? Well, she had pancreatic cancer. She went down to like a fifth of her weight, looked like a skeleton with skin on. And even those moments, she was talking about God. How great it's going to be. 
that she wanted to make sure her kids and her grandkids did not forsake their faith. And even so, this is what my grandma did while she's dying. She planned her own funeral. Here she is because all of her internal organs quit working. She was vomiting up what should have been passing out the back end. And then she was writing the song. She wanted worship songs sang at her funeral. She's in all this pain and torment, and she wanted to sing, I'll Fly Away. Because there were glorious days still ahead for her. We can get so focused on the mess and the pain and the problem here that we lose sight. That our God is so much bigger. Saul lost sight. And so he grabbed more pain and torment and fell on it. We need to pick up the cross. Not an instrument of death for us. We pick up the instrument of death for our sins and say this has victory over us. Are you ready to face God and answer for the choices you have made? Now, I'm going to read this again because this is a very heavy statement. Are you ready to face God and answer for the choices you have made all through your life? Because one day you're going to have to. I'm going to have to face God for all of my choices. Are you ready for that? Death is inevitable. It's unexpected mostly. And you can either choose to face God and death like Saul did. Or you can choose to come to the cross and accept that death for your sins so you can receive eternal life forever. You know, I've made really bad decisions. I've made foolish decisions. My epitaph should say, Donnie is dumb. And yet God took all that foolishness away. And he handed me real life. And so now that day when I stand before God, I don't have to sit there and go, well, I made bad choices. Jesus is going to stand next to me and say, Hey, Dad, God the Father, He's with me. His choices are gone because He made the best choice of all. He chose me. And you can let go of all this past, all the pain, all the turmoil, and you can say, forget that. I cling on to Jesus. I am going to hold on to Him. Are you ready for that? You can choose to face God with Jesus by your side, or you can choose to stand before God by yourself. Once we accept Jesus, the eternal penalty, the eternal penalty, not the earthly consequences, the eternal penalty is taken away. Once we accept Jesus, we don't have to fear death like Saul. We don't have to sit there and see all the army of darkness around us closing in. We don't have to look at the people next to us and say, can you just end it for me? Because in that moment, we're going to see Jesus. So I want to say there are some of you right now who have broken hearts. Whether it's foolish decisions, whether it's been turmoil that's been poured onto you by other people's foolish decisions, whatever it is. Are you willing to finally come before God and lay it there? I need to come and say, God, I need this. I need you. I can't carry this anymore. 
as I told you, we're, we're changing things up. We're, we're going to have this back room back there. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, we're going to have people back there. We're going to sit and pray before you because I'm going to tell you, none of us in this room have the real answers either except for the answer of Jesus. And we're going to go together and walk beside you in this. If you need to make that decision, will you make your way back to that room? Let us go to the throne room of God together. Let's stand and let's actually go to Him right now. God, we come before You. Lord, we praise You for Your Son. We thank You so much that we don't have to stand before You holding all of our choices, all of our sins on our own. I thank You that we can lay them at the foot of the cross and know that Your Son carried the eternal burden. Help us to learn from this lesson of Saul's life that we don't need to be foolish and carry it all on our own. Help us to be wise, to trust and choose you. Give us the courage, God. There's going to be so many dark days coming. And just when it seems to start getting better, it starts getting worse again. Help us, Lord, in those moments to quit looking down to look up. God, forgive us. Give us of all these problems we choose. And help us as a family, as a church body right now, to lift up our voices, to lift up our faith and to proclaim who you truly are. We thank you for your Son, and in his name we pray. Amen.